Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we dissect and explore the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief of Intrafish, and I'm joined today by John Fiorillo in Seattle, John Evans in Brazil, and Rachel Mutter in Kuala Lumpur. Hi everyone, let's dive right in. We've got two Americans and two Brits. Rachel, you wrote a column today uh, about your experience in Thailand at the Seafood Summit last week, and uh, you were you were a little harsh about uh, about some of the NGO community throwing a little bit of red meat, so to speak, in front of the business audience. But what what was your what was behind that? Well, yeah, I wrote a column today, and I'm yeah awaiting awaiting the fallout um, as we speak, because I'm sure there will be some. Yeah, I I think I was fairly honest um about what i felt like happened at last week's conference but it's nothing i don't think that um other parts of the industry feel like um just haven't maybe publicly said yet but they will i have no doubt that they will um yeah when i was there uh, at the seaweb summit um obviously held in bangkok uh where there's been sort of massive change in the in the Thai seafood industry, um, I guess kind of forced upon them by uh, the, the uncovering of all these human rights abuses in the industry. Um, it's pretty serious stuff. Um, it obviously caused caused the EU to to give them a yellow card, um, and and the US to downgrade them as well. Um, but on the back of that, they've really made some impressive changes um, to something that's you know they've tackled tackled an issue that's actually really really serious. Obviously, um, that probably doesn't need to be said, but yeah, I just felt like the NGO community, their conversation hadn't really changed. Um, it was like there were two totally separate conversations going on a lot of the time. And the NGOs weren't really listening to what was being yelled at by them. And, but yeah, virtually yelled at um, by, by industry and by the Thai government, which was, you know, we're doing stuff. Uh, we're doing some really serious work here. And you should be joining us rather than just keep going on about certification schemes uh, and all the other stuff that I feel like NGOs often go on about. So that's not to, that's not to say that it, that it was all the NGOs there. There were certainly um, some that sort of stood out as really having come to the table and, and done their bit. But it was just a sort of general theme, I think. There was, there was a lot of frustration. Um, and I just don't think Thai industry and the, and the Thai companies in particular are getting the credit that they deserve um, from, from that sector of the industry. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's admit it. The, the NGO community, as far as sustainable seafood, is kind of it's kind of run out of gas uh, a little bit. I mean, certifications are all in place. The programs that uh, are succeeding, ASC, BAP, MSC, those are kind of solidified now. So there's really not a lot of movement that I see there. Um, so they're looking for a place to go to kind of drill new new land. And um, I just I just think they're a little lost right now. I mean, the fact that they're not going to have the summit next year, hmm, I'm not sure exactly why, but I, I kind of think the a lack of interest is uh, part of it. Well, and you could say you've got the northern uh, part of the world now is largely uh, has largely implemented a lot of the sustainability um, uh, targets that were that were asked uh, of them. 
um, or they've been in place a long time in terms of, of tax and, and quotas and, and, uh, and, and strong regulations. So I think to your point, Rachel, part of the problem too is I think for Western NGOs, um, what you end up is you end up with hammers looking for nails. And I think the way that they, they needed to staff up, the way that they needed to get moving for this first, uh, this first um, period of the sustainable seafood movement, I guess you could say, was it needed to be about communication. It needed to be about direct action. It needed to be about eco-labels um, and a lot of noise. And so you didn't need the kind of expertise that you, you will need to make on-the-ground changes in Southeast Asia, for example. That requires a completely different skill than a 23-year-old going and handcuffing themselves to, you know, a Tesco. Um, so I think that's the challenge is how then do you make the very, very real changes that need to be made in, for example, the South China Sea or some of these other areas with, with human trafficking? How do you make those changes? And that doesn't that no longer needs the kind of sort of um, bleeding heart NGOs um, that, that can sometimes enter into, uh, into some of these discussions and are important to these discussions and important to these uh, efforts, actually. But when you have to make uh, some systemic changes, you have to bring government to the table, you have to bring uh, the UN, you have to bring uh, the companies, you have to bring labor rights organizations, it gets extremely complicated and it really gets down into policy. Uh, you've got barriers like language, you've got massive cultural barriers. So I think in a sense that maybe there's an argument to be made that the sustainable seafood movement in the way that we've known it and covered it for the past 20 years is uh, is is maybe over. I don't know. John? Well, um yeah, I guess I would never say it's over, but it's definitely uh, in a transition period. And, you know, the first when it when it kicked off in, in the late 90s, the industry uh, didn't didn't know how to react. So they lost control of of the narrative. It may be the opportunity now for the industry to take that narrative back in the sense of what you just said, Drew, and what Rachel said in in her column, now is the hard work. And the industry has set up uh, improvement projects and things like that that are actually uh, designed to do the hard work on the ground, you know, change fishing gear, um, all those types of things that just you, know, you can't just do by complaining about the situation. So uh, I think it's I think it's a good opportunity for the industry to to take a more aggressive approach here and try and take back this um you know sustainable seafood idea. So Rachel, what is then from your view um kind of the next step for that that huge group of NGOs? Uh, that were there in Bangkok, what are they going to do? What are they going to focus on? And will they be able to pivot to some of these other issues that are now maybe more to the fore, like forced labor and trafficking? Yeah, and that's an interesting one. And I totally agree with you that, that maybe um, some of the NGOs don't necessarily have the skill set um, employed within them to sort of deal with this stuff. Um, this is this is very complex um, 
it involves sort of a lot of cross-party negotiation and a sort of sensitivity to, to cultural difference, um, you know, and very systemic problems um, in a massive industry. So I sort of, I don't know. I mean, I hope, I hope that the people that we're, that we're sort of specifically talking about went away from that conference last week um, and noticed that, that friction and that gap um, that is that chasm really that, that has sort of appeared um, between them, them and the industry and that they, they go back and they reassess what they're doing. But my concern is that a lot of the, a lot of these certification schemes, um, they are now developing, um, you know, they're developing criteria within them for these issues, for human rights abuses and forced labor, but actually many of them go, don't go in depth enough at the moment in those kind of issues. So whether, you know, and all they know is really certification to this point. So whether they can go beyond that, I'm not sure. It, it takes a real rethinking of the system, I think. So it will be kind of interesting. And I think some of the NGOs will definitely come out stronger out of this, the ones that, that do have their expertise and the ones that, that do understand the complexity um, of what's happening. And they will probably come to the fore. Um, but I think the days of, yeah, gold stars and, yeah, ticks in boxes are sort of over. Yeah, I think that bit is done, as you say, John. Yeah, and I, I wonder too, I mean, just, just to pivot a bit to uh, the, the U.S. State Department released its, um, its trafficking in persons report yesterday, um, which has been a, a big driver for change in Thailand. And, um, and, and it can have a, a very large effect on how governments react to their labor policies. Um, and, and, you know, I, I get the sense, Rachel, that you came out of the seafood summit, um, pretty optimistic about you, what, the changes that have been made in Thailand. And I think that's fair. I think it's, it's kind of amazing what, what has happened in, in Thailand and what is, what continues to happen because there's still a long way to go. Um, but, but part of that has been heightening awareness of the problems. Um, I know Lola, uh, interviewed Darian McBain and she, she talked about that, that the pressure from governments and Western countries was a big part of what got Thailand to make big movements. Now, uh, the tip report, uh, had some, some downgrades, some unusual downgrades, uh, in some cases, but probably the most notable one was in, in Vietnam, which was moved to what's called the tier two watch list. The, the tiers go from one to three. Uh, tier one is doing great. Tier three is doing terrible. Um, and Vietnam was was moved to what's called the tier two watch list. And that basically says, hey, you're not doing enough. Um, we're going to drop you down into tier three if you don't get your act together. Um, and, um, you know, it makes for some pretty grim reading, that report. Um, it's Human trafficking, especially in that report, um, you know the the I think the general public more when you when you hear that they think of of sex trafficking, um, and that that does make up a huge part of the of the report or those types of of human rights abuses. But um, the fishing sector still figures prominently in that report. I mean, there's too many countries to highlight um, that aren't necessarily relevant for for our audience in terms of uh, in terms of the seafood supply. But many, many, many of those countries, uh, the tip report cited that they have trafficking and forced labor on their on their fishing uh, fishing vessels. Um, so yeah, it, a, a, a grim report and not great news for Vietnam. Um, Rachel, you have any thoughts on what this might mean for Vietnam? I know that 
already this morning we've had some uh there there's there's some things happening in the background already I can tell you um in the Vietnamese government and in associations and and with um companies involved with Vietnamese, Vietnamese seafood because we've already gotten some some feedback uh that that there is concern but Rachel what's your prediction on how this might uh impact things if at all just a little asterisk China is on tier 3 and they have shipped more seafood to the US than ever in recent years so sometimes it doesn't have effect but do you do you think this might have an impact on on Vietnam Um yeah it's interesting you say about China yeah there's a slight yeah hypocrisy there but uh, I think I think it will have an impact on Vietnam yeah um I mean, Vietnam has sort of slightly moved away from the U.S. market, I guess, in the last couple of years, just because of the because of the tariffs. But it's it's still a very key market to them. And, and what the U.S. does as a market, um, the EU often follows. So I wouldn't be surprised if the EU um, issues issues something along the same lines uh, fairly soon, which will, I think, definitely give Vietnam a big kick up the. Uh, Ask. Can I say that on a podcast? I don't know. Yeah, you can um, say what you want. On a I just said it. I just said it. Um, and yes, I mean, luckily for them, they have Thailand as a as a case study uh, right on their doorstep. So, uh, you know, they're in a better position. They're not the first the first country to really have to deal with this on a big scale. So they can definitely go to them for help. But seafood is a massive part of the Vietnamese economy. Uh, seafood exports. So yeah, I imagine I imagine there will be some fairly rapid movement, I would have thought. Yeah, uh, that's going to be really interesting to see. Um, let's see what the reaction is, uh, if there is any, because, yeah, um, yeah, the hypocrisy of China, I think, is is quite interesting. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a success story, like you said, right next door. And um, if there is... Uh, if there is going to be further change in Southeast Asia, I think it's important for these countries that that do have a leadership role to play, like Thailand and Vietnam, um, to to step up and and uh, and do a bit more. Um, okay, well, let's move on to our our next topic, um, which maybe is a little bit of a happier topic, and I guess that is uh, omega three labeling. Um, and John Evans, you broke a story on uh, on the FDA announcing some revised health uh, uh, guidelines or revised uh, language guidelines for how companies can talk about omega-3s in their products. These things can get a little bit complicated. Can you just give us a basic overview of what this is going to mean and why it's so important for the seafood industry? Yeah, it's uh, yes, sir. It's uh, it's an issue that's been um, kicking around for a long time. But this week, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration said it will allow the use of new qualified health claims, um, stating that consuming uh, EPA and DHA, DHA omega three fatty acids in food or dietary supplements may reduce the risk of hypertension and coronary heart disease. Um, the FDA determined that uh, while the uh, overall evidence of omega-3s benefits on health does not meet the significant scientific agreement standard required for an authorised, the difference here, the authorised health claim, health claim, it does meet the credible evidence standard for a qualified health claim uh, when you label uh, conventional foods and, and diet, uh, dietary supplements. So it's seen as generally very good news, particularly the people I've spoken to see uh, this week in the, in the industry see it as very good news for the industry, a step forward 
uh, particularly for supplement makers, as, as much as uh, the general seafood industry. Yeah. So, I mean, how is there any understanding of, of how uh, companies might be able to use this and, and what seafood companies should, should do in reaction to this? Should they be running out and changing their, their labels? And will it have that, that uh, much of an impact if they do so? It's not clear at the moment uh, when you know, companies will start to run with this, when, when this, this will take place. Um, we'll be speaking to, hopefully, over the next um, a few days, working days, people uh, in the industry just to find out what their plans are. So that'll be something to, uh, to, to look out for, I think. Um, I mean, as I said, it has been kicking around even uh, since my first fell into fish between 2004 and 2006. I remember writing about, about it around 2006. And um, yeah, it's 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 something that's it's, it's been running on for a, quite a long time, and, and this 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 announcement has been long awaited in the U.S. particularly. Yeah, and I think um, you know, John Fiorillo. I mean, I, this has been one of the the things um, that the U.S. in particular has really really tried to focus on is a connection between seafood and health as as a marketing tool. Um, the uh, John Connolly, when when he joined the National Fisheries Institute, that was one of the first things that he kind of put into place was, okay, we're going to really really link seafood to health. So this this seems like a pretty important um, step forward. Yeah, I agree, and I think that linkage is is solid right now in consumers' minds uh, and younger consumers in particular. Um, you know, want to eat food to help them. Uh, perform better athletically or, you know, just maintain a certain high level of health. Um, it's interesting because this change focuses largely on the effects of omega-3 oil on lowering blood pressure, which is when you consider that one in every three adult Americans has been diagnosed with high blood pressure, um, this is an, a resonating issue with with many consumers, old and young. So um, I think, I mean, it seems exciting. I agree with John. I don't know yet how uh, seafood manufacturers and suppliers will, will take advantage of this, but um, it certainly broadens the message to uh, include now blood pressure as well as uh, coronary heart disease. And, um, it, you know, I think it opens it up to a lot more people to um, understand the value of omega-3. Also, if I, if I just may put in there that um, in these um, turbulent political times, anything that could lower uh, blood pressure on both sides of the Atlantic has to be uh, has to be something to be welcomed. <laughs> Amen to that. So you have to get that in. So, <laughs> always a little a little dig there, which we we welcome. Um, Rachel, uh, in the UK, is omega or are omega threes called out? Uh, a lot on uh, labels there, John Evans. I know you're you're going to be looking into um, the labeling status in the in the UK and the EU um, in the coming uh, days or weeks. But Rachel, is that sort of is the link as strong? Do you think among British consumers' minds? Um, I'd like to say yes, but no. I don't. I don't think it is. I um, 
I think I think there's an awareness, and I think it's it's funny. You sort of see omega threes being added to things like eggs and milk, but then on seafood packaging, it doesn't actually seem to be that prominent. Maybe it's assumed that people know, or I'm not sure. But I, I don't know if the awareness is quite the same. When you talk about the US, um, every time you guys talk about sort of US consumers, there definitely seems to be. Um, <laughs> somewhat ironically, like <laughs> a greater awareness um, with U.S. consumers about these kind of health issues and the nutritional value of the food they eat, um, definitely over the U.K., I would say. I don't know, John, if you agree with that. Well, I think you're indirectly saying how <laughs> focus on this health and be so fat. I think that's what you're that's trying what to say. Yeah. That's not what I was. No, no, not at all. But, not at all. But ignoring that, you know. Um, I would say no. Yeah. I mean, the health of seafood is is its calling card, Um, even more than taste, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, people just see it as the healthy alternative in the, you know, in the protein slash meat uh, category. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. Well, on that note, I think since uh, we've got positive news to, to say about the seafood industry, we can wrap it up. Uh, thank you, John Evans, uh, and especially you, Rachel, who had to leave the disco to join us. Um, if because it's late at night there in KL, uh, and that's what I do on a Friday night: go to discos. Yes, of course, <laughs> that's what we all see. But I do want to say a special message to uh, to you and to John Evans, uh, if we don't speak before them. But happy Fourth of July! I hope you guys are going to do something fun. <laughs> I'll, I'll unfurl my flag. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, we'll be back next week. Um, just a little bit of, uh, of promotion for what's coming up for Interfish. Remember that we have our Salmon Summit during the Aquanor show in Trondheim, Norway, which is uh, in late August. And then on September 19th, we'll be back in London for our Seafood Investor Forum, which we're doing in partnership with, uh, with DNB. Thanks, everyone. We will speak to you next week.